Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, so I am driving in my car uh, to interview somebody for a podcast. And as I'm driving, I'm thinking about what approach I want to take, um, you know, how I want to start, how I want to finish and all that. And then I realized that actually what I'm going to try and do today is talk to someone about the Holocaust like it actually happened. I've got to try and put aside everything I think I know because I've seen a million movies about it and read a million books about it and because the Holocaust has become this like sort of pop culture reference for us now. It's like there's no surprises left, uh, there's no nothing stunning about it anymore, nothing incredible about it anymore. It, it, it's like it's unreal, like it, like it never really happened. It's hard to connect to it. I've got to remember that the person I'm about to speak to didn't know about it before it happened to them. They didn't see it coming. They didn't know it was possible because they hadn't seen a hundred movies about it like I have. The things that happened to this guy weren't even invented before they were done to him. So I'm going to ask you to listen in the same way, please. To listen to this story as though you don't know how it ends, as though it's the first time you've heard it, and really try and put yourself in his shoes. Really try and think about your family, your parents, your grandmother, your friends, your school, your life, and, and all of these things happening to you and about you seeing these things happen to other people. And you know what? I'm not going to beat around the bush about this. Think about your government's policies regarding refugees. And think about the policies of the governments around the world in the 30s with regard to Jewish refugees and how many Jews died because they couldn't escape, they couldn't get out because no one would take them. Are the millions of refugees around the world today that different? And if they are, why? I mean, how do you justify that? So I'm about to go inside now to the Jewish Holocaust Museum in Elstonwick in Melbourne. I'm going to talk to a man called Willie who was a Polish teenager in the late 30s, just around about the time that Hitler became Chancellor of Germany and then went on to march into Poland. I'm Michelle Laurie and this is the Nitty Gritty Committee, conversations about the guts and the glory of life. Well, I was born in the city of Krakow, which used to be the capital of Poland. Uh, and 
until the about 17th or 18th century, where it was transferred to Warsaw. Uh, and my childhood till about 1929 was very good. Uh, we had a beautiful apartment, two rooms and a kitchen, which was really rich those days. And uh, in 1929, it's worldwide depression. So uh, I, I was just a kid, a few years old. Uh, my parents lost that apartment. I had to move in to one room. Uh, and uh, my parents started a business. They rented a little shop, and they were kind of a coffee lounge. And then we moved out from that little room because it became writing above the shop a, a small apartment with two rooms. We didn't need a kitchen because we had downstairs the kitchen. And uh, of course I went to school and uh, until you know the war started and the things were reasonably good. Uh, 1935, uh, one of the head of, uh, in Poland, uh, Marshal Pilsudski, uh, passed away. He was one of the heroes of liberating Poland from the, uh, before the war, World War I. <clears throat> and uh, times have changed. Uh, Anti-Semitism started to grow. There were some shops who put a sign up, uh, uh, Jews are not uh, wanted here to come to buy there. Uh, there was uh, there was a group which was called Endetia, you know, and uh, they marched and they screamed against Jews, especially around uh, Christmas time, and during the year also, the universities they started to complain that there should be a, a, pro, a more smaller percentage mm -hmm. of Jewish people at the university. Krakow had a famous university still there the Jagellon University, which was established, I think, in the 15th or 14th century. Uh, and th that's how you felt around. Uh, I was doing not too bad uh, myself. Uh, I had a few Polish friends, but uh, you could feel it. As you could hear it in uh, many places, you know, where that uh, say, oh, you're bloody Jew, somebody screaming. Uh, you know, when the, when you passed the church and you wear a cap, you had to take the cap off. It doesn't happen all the time, but from time to time there was somebody, and if a Jewish person was wearing a cap, they came in and threw the cap off them. What about when the Germans annexed Poland? Yeah. When did you know after that that the new regime was going to step it up? Well, we, we didn't believe what happened. I mean, it never crossed my mind, not even my parents. We were persecuted, we were restricted. Uh, we couldn't walk some streets. Uh, then later on, they started to open in ghettos and put the people into the ghettos. And when they were, for instance, in Krakow, there were a population about six or 65,000 Jewish people. And when they opened the ghetto, there was room only between 10 and 15,000. The rest were ordered to move to the east, to the part where uh, close to the Russian border. 
when the Germans came in, they shot quite a few people, and non-Jewish as well, mm. you know, and, uh, and that's how it started. They just started shooting people. So Poland, and up until that point, is a civilised European nation. There well, is anti-Semitism that is to the extent of saying Jews are not allowed in this shop or yelling abuse at you in the street. But when the Germans arrive, they start shooting people in the streets. Yeah, yeah they, they start shooting them. A lot of them in the small villages, you know, small townships. Uh, they could come, shoot a few Jews and move on. You know, later on they did it in, in the thousands. They used to bring them to forests, dark ditches, big ditches, long ditches, and made people undress and machine gun them, and they falling one on top of the other. Mm. And uh, oh, that, that started to be horrible. Yeah. Horrible. yeah, I was a teenager and I had to go to work uh, because I didn't have any trade. So I was doing all the labors work, cleaning streets, carting furniture, uh, carting some coal, you know, all, all sorts of labor work, and many times beaten up, never got paid for it, never received nothing. Uh, when they opened the ghetto, we didn't have a permit to get into the ghetto, but uh, I had a grandmother who was living 30 kilometers south from Krakow, towards the Czechoslovakian border near the Carpathian Mountains. And my father obtained a permit uh, to, that we can go to my grandmother's. So we went there, and from there I was taken to a, a first was so-called forced labor camp, but then I didn't have any, uh, practically no connection with my family. My family was uh, taken away to an extermination camp in Belzec, in 1942, on the 30th or 31st of August, in 1942, and I was taken to a camp also in 1942 by the month of May, so about four months earlier. <coughs> and after the war, I found out what happened to them. And already when I was in Germany, after liberation. And when I came to Australia, I found a little bit more about it that they brought to Belzec and they were murdered the same day they arrived there in, the, in those guest chambers. Till I came to Auschwitz in 1944, I didn't even believe that people are being murdered by guessing in the millions, in the hundreds of thousands. No, I didn't know that. Was that a rumor? Had you heard a rumor about that or you knew nothing about that? There was uh, there was a little bit of rumor because uh, before I got to uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau, I was working, uh, I was put on to work in the steelworks, and then they brought pots and pans which were melted into the iron ore. I don't know how they did it, but that's what they used it for. And they told me, oh, this came from Belzec, this came from Treblinka, from other camp. So there were rumors about it, and we worked with people, with professionals who worked in the factory there, and there were three people, so they went home, and they brought some news, but they weren't sure of it either. Who could believe that you built a gas chamber to kill people in the hundreds of thousands? I mean, it was hard to believe, you know, especially Germans who are such a well-educated uh, group. Civilized people. Yeah, civilized people. Mm and they didn't look like it.
They didn't look like it, no. So people, when they were given the news that they were to be transported to the east or whatever the, the euphemism was that they were told, they packed up cookware oftentimes because oh, they thought yeah. when they arrived they needed to be able to cook food. Yeah, absolutely. They were told they're going to work on farms or in the factories, whatever. The, the, they didn't know that they're going to a death camp, that they were murdered where they arrived. They were just squeezed in into a wagon, 70, 80, 90 people, sometimes 100 people in one wagon. There was standing room only. They traveled for quite a number of hours. And when they came, came out, and uh, there was a speech who came to a neighborhood, blah, 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 and, and they were taken to the gas chambers. Well, let's talk about your story specifically. So when you um, were moved to Auschwitz, was that the first camp that no, you lived no, in? No, no, no. <coughs> My first camp was in Krakow Plashov, mm -hmm. and that was known as a forced labor camp. Mm -hmm. uh, there I spent one year. Now, this is the camp, I believe, made famous in Schindler's List. Right. And the character Eamon Gert, who was played by Ray Fiennes, who famously, in the movie at least, was a sadist who would enjoy standing on his balcony with a gun and, and shooting Jews who were walking around doing their work in the camp and stuff like that. that that's where you were. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. That was the camp. That was uh, Amon Gert. He was uh, a vicious, vicious, inhuman sadist. Uh, there's, there are many incidents I could talk about, but the, the one which sticks still in my head is one day he was riding a horse and suddenly I heard a shot and I saw somebody fall over. I couldn't tell you it was a man or a woman because he didn't discriminate against women. He wasn't a sexist. You know, he punished women the same like men. He had women flogged. He had women whatever, you know, and uh, the same like men. And, uh, you know, I met up with him after the war. He was arrested by the Americans and my English has improved very much because I learned English in school before the war, but during the war I forgot every word of it. But being between the Americans, uh, I started to recover, and then one American officer became one my friend, mm -hmm. and he became my mentor. So if I said something wrong in English, he corrected me, which helped a great lot. And uh, I was working for a while, uh, for over a year, year and a half, for the Americans at the main gate at the Dachau camp, which became uh, also a prison for the SS, were imprisoned there. Uh, so after the war, they ended up using, the Allies ended up using Dachau camp as a Dachau prison camp, for uh, yes. German prisoners of war. And, yeah, and also there was a war crimes tribunal in the Dachau, and they had a lot of criminals because there was what they called a bunker, and that was like a solitary confinement. And uh, one day, an uh, American general came in, and I got a call to the main gate to come to see the commandant's office and the American, and uh, he introduced me to the general and a few officers, and he said to me, would you take the general and the officers around the camp, show him around? We went to the camp inside, and of course, once we went to a barrack, uh, everybody jumped up, all the Germans there, and 
one of the, he was a, a, felt, a, a sergeant or something, and he melted that. And I remember I was laughing. The general said to him, you report to him, to me, mm. you know. It was something unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> the pleasure that I had that I stay and he is on attention. And then I could never get to that bunker to get in there because nobody could go in there, only the Americans, you know. They. So I said to the general, General, would you like to see the bunker? <laughs> because the Germ that, that's what the Germans had. And he said, oh, yes, what's there? I said, they are the criminals there, the real criminals. He said, okay, let's go. When we came to the gate, of course, a general comes, everybody stands to attention. And the general said, I would like to go inside, have a look. And he said straight away, he rang up, the officer of the guard came. Yes, sir. And so I went with him. And there were, you know, doors like, like in a prison. And, a little, and suddenly on that, I see Amundgate, and I started to shake. And I said to the general, General, you think you can give an order that I can go in and see him? And I told him on the way about, like I talk to you now, uh, about my experiences, and I mentioned the name Amon Get also, because that was my the first camp. And he had a look at me, and he said, yeah, I can do that, but I want you to think of something what I am going to tell you. And then when you decide you want to go in, I will give the order. If you go in there and do what I think you want to do, you will become like him. Mm. Now, is that what you want? You know, that really, you know, hit me. I, I, I got stumped. I didn't know what to answer because I started to realize that he's right. I become a criminal like him if I, what I wanted to go in to hit him, spit on him, mm. you know? Mm. And uh, I said, General, thank you very much what you just told me. I don't want to go in. You are absolutely right. That's a good lesson for me for my life. And he was very happy that I told him there. And off he went. And about 10 days later, came two officers from Poland to get to. And they took him to Poland, to Krakow, where he was tried. He had three defense lawyers. He had the right to question the witnesses, mm -hmm. everything. But he was sentenced to death, and they hung him in Poland in 1946. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. I would rather see that he rots in prison instead of being hung. Mm -hmm. Because hung, OK, so takes half an hour, you know, the whole procedure, or an hour, and that's it, he's gone. But in prison, if he stays a few years, he suffers a bit. That's what I wanted. Did you ever take the opportunity to um, take out some of your anger and pain on German people in that camp or anywhere else? Did you ever spit on them the way they spat at you? Or? No, never. never, never, ever. When Get was taken away, they had to come to the main gate to pick up the documents, the officers they had to leave. That was the law. Of course, there was the military police, and I was just interpret, doing some interpretations who came in. So I went to that uh, truck, and I said, Amon, 
You go now back to Plashov, because that was the name of the camp in Krakow. That's the outer suburb of Krakow, where the uh, camp was, on top of a Jewish cemetery. Mm. And then they took some more land to increase it. Now you go to Poland, and uh, you will be welcomed, welcomed by the Jews. And to be welcomed, you got 25 on your backside, because that's what he was doing to a lot, lot of people, yeah. men and women, yeah. you know? He never said a word. Mm. He was sitting quiet. He was a big fellow, you know, much taller than me. Right. Big fellow. That was the only thing which I uh, spoke. And I live in Germany, between Germans, and uh, I got on with him quite all right. Never, never, I never got out, you know, to be angry or speak that. There's nothing I could do. What, what could I do? I, I took that, what the general told me, I took it really in mind. Mm. You know, today people ask me, do you hate the Germans? And you know what my answer is? Mm. No. Mm. No. Because the perpetrators, I can't forgive them, and I can't forget them. But the children, what are, what are, they're not guilty. What could they do? Mm. Maybe if they grew up, they would become like their father or their mother because there were women in DSS who were also very cruel, you know, and uh, that's how it was. Now, in speaking of women um, who were brutal, Buchenwald had a commandant, Otto Koch, and his wife was Isa Koch. She was in Dachau. She was in Dachau as well in, at the end there when you were there, when the German prisoners were there. Sure. Can you explain her significance and did you meet her there? I saw her when I went to that bunker, she was one of those cells, but I didn't spoke to her. I didn't know at the time how bad she was. What she did is when she got prisoners and she saw they got a nice tattoo. Like me? Yeah, you probably would. Tattoos oh, yes, like me? Absolutely. Mm. You would be on her list. She had him killed and take the skin off with the tattoo and she made lampshades out of it. And those lampshades, I am told, uh, can be seen today in Sachsenhausen. That's in Oranienburg near Berlin. There was a concentration camp there. Before the war, they, they started that. I worry sometimes that there are so many movies, there's so much popular culture about the Holocaust, movies, books. I'm 42 years old, so I've grown up and I feel like I've seen everything, that it desensitizes people to the reality of what happened to you. It's like, it's like a cliched pop culture reference now. Do you, how do you feel about that? Well, the movies are good in a way. I don't know. You know, it's very hard to say whether, for instance, I got, I have, just before you came, I had here students. I know there were about 50 of them, maybe 40. I don't know, I didn't count them. And I have, every time I come here, I speak to students, those two days, like I mentioned to you. In the, mm -hmm. Now, there are some students who are very interested. I am not a teacher, but when I stand in front and I see them, I could see which one is interested, which one is not. There are some who uh, try to sleep, others at the back sits next to a girl and they romance, <laughs> romance with each other. You know, they're not interested and they started to laugh. Sometimes I get annoyed. 
you know, because when I speak, I want everybody to understand and to believe me that I'm, in another 10, 15 years, there will be none of us. Mm-hmm. None of the survivors will be. I can tell you, even the child survivors. You know, it's, it's 70 years now. Mm-hmm. So how long can we live? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And, uh, oh, it was a few weeks back, there was a couple. They were telling jokes, apparently, to each other, and they were laughing try to quiet, make it quietly. And I saw him and I kept quiet, I kept on going and going, and then uh, I got a little bit annoyed. You know, if they didn't listen to me, it's okay, but to laugh and to dis- disrupt some others. So I asked them if they could tell me the joke they were talking about, because I would like to have a laugh too. Mm. And the teacher straight away had a look at him, and they kept quiet till the end of the story. Yeah. Well, I don't do that very often. Usually when I see he doesn't listen, doesn't listen, I'm not going to force myself on anybody. And uh, after I finish, some people ask questions. They want to know more about it, about how I feel about that, about that. You know, and uh, so I give the answer to the best of my knowledge. And if they ask me a question and I don't know, I said, I'm very sorry, I don't know. Mm. I can't answer that. Because I don't like to discuss religion, politics, because I'm not good in religion, so good, you know, to know every answer. So they have to go to a priest or to a rabbi. (laughs) (laughs) They should know that. And, uh, And politics, I'm not a politician, I'm a too honest man. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I don't know politics, so I don't want to get into it. I suppose because I was raised by my mum is kind of obsessed with the Holocaust, to be honest, and and so I have a very fertile imagination, and so I imagine myself, try and imagine myself in your situation, and I look at you and I think, God, you survived Auschwitz. You you have tattoo on your arm of the number you. 
you know, I, I just can't imagine anyone sitting in front of you when you're talking and laughing and not understanding or not putting themselves, putting themselves in your shoes. Can you believe you. that happens? You know, when I came, uh, that was the first time. When I came to uh, Birkenau, to Auschwitz, in 1944, and I told you I'm an apprentice bricklayer, so one day we were taken to the women's compound to do some brickwork. And uh, suddenly I have a look, and they brought some women from a barrack. And uh, an order came out, close off, when I heard it in German. When I heard it, I had a look. I had a look, and the woman all naked. Mm. I have never seen a, na a live naked woman in my life. Never. Mm. Because, so I said, oh my God. So I looked for a while, and then I saw so many. I said, it's enough. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't want to look. So I'm thinking, you know, because before the war, there were no bikinis. No. You see? Today, the women are not as shy as they used to be. A woman, if she needed to fix up her stocking, she went somewhere in a corner nobody sees to fix up a little frock up till here and to fix the stocking. Mm -hmm. You know, there were one-piece swimsuits. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, we live near the Vistula River, no, not near a uh, uh, sea. Mm -hmm. So people went to and baited and swam in the, in the river. And they were very, you know, very shy. Mm -hmm. And today you go to the beach, they are topless and that, you know, and that shook me because I was brought up in that mm. situation that you, you respect women. I remember when it was raining, tram, and I was just a boy, 12 years old, and a woman was a young woman, could be 15 years old. I stood aside from her, let her get in into the tram first. I got wet, <laughs> mm -hmm. and then I went. When I was sitting in the, uh, in the tram, and there were all seats taken, and suddenly a woman came in, I always used to get up. She didn't have to be an old one. Yeah. You know, 20 years old, 25, I got up, please sit down, yeah. and I stood. Today, that doesn't exist. No. You can see young boys or young girls sitting and comes even an old woman and they wouldn't give her the space. They wouldn't get up, please sit down. Mm. Very, very, very rarely mm. it happened. Now I don't, uh, for the past quite a number of years, I got a car, so I don't use the public transport. Mm. So I don't know uh, how it's happening now, but I don't think so. But don't you th do you think that young people now who, with the internet, can see, um, they can see beheadings from battles, oh, yeah. you know, they can see terrible war crimes in colour that people have filmed on their phones. Yeah. Is, are they desensitised to stories like yours because of that? I tell you what, that it shocks me. You know, I saw uh, on TV they were beheading some people, uh, I think it was somewhere in Syria or in Iraq, they were beheading, they didn't show how they were beheading, but what they show is the fellow with the knife mm. and the one on the knees, and then they chopped the head off. Mm. And I think that there was a young boy who was holding a head mm. uh, by the hair, 
just the head, but that was just the flesh. They didn't show it for long, and that really shook me up. Yeah. You must have thought that you had seen the worst things you were ever going to see by the end of 1945. That, that, that almost repeats itself. Yeah. Uh, I, it's not exactly as that, because people are fighting you know, with each other, and one kills each other. Uh, but there we, we didn't we didn't kill we didn't fight yeah. although there was a resistance there was definitely a resistance there were many partisans and do think uh, I wasn't lucky I had two good friends you know with whom I was in the camp and they escaped from the camp and uh, they went to the, with the partisans and I met one of them after the war wow. they survived the war I met him in, in Germany, and I said, how could you do that to me? You went away, didn't take me with you. Mm. He said, look, I had military experience. I was in the army before the war, uh, and you didn't. Mm. And uh, the, the times were pretty tough, and uh, you had to hide and that. But you survived, so what are you complaining about? Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about how tough things got. and what you're reduced to as a human being and things that you never thought you would do. I've read about you that you went to the hospital uh, with something in the camp and when you came back, all of your things were stolen. Your clothes, the tiny possessions oh, yeah, well, that you that had that were gone. Was, that was when I was in Plashov. Uh, I, uh, what was the illness? Uh, oh, gee. My head's getting... Uh, there was an epidemic and... Uh, I caught I had high fever, so they they took me from the, my barrack, and one barrack was like a hospital. There were bunks, and on every bunk there were two people, mm. and the bunks were just narrow. It was just about three feet mm. or one meter wide. The bunks, head to toe, we lived, and uh, I was there, and I was very lucky that the, we had no medication whatsoever. And uh, the fever dropped. I was there about two weeks or so. And uh, after two days without fever, they sent me back to the barrack and they gave me one week off. Mm. Now a rumor started to fly around the camp that all the people who are here who are sick, semi-sick, will be shot. Mm. And they were shooting people there because one day they brought 22 people which they've been uh, accused that they are unfit of work, uh, to work, and they put him behind our barrack, and they, he shot him there. Mm. It was, uh, he was, I think, a rank of a staff sergeant or, or something. He done the shooting. His name was Miller, Hans Josef Miller. Mm. And uh, he shot him, 22 people, just behind my barrack, so I believe that. And I didn't have any shoes. I just had a pair of pants and a jacket, very light jacket, no shirt. And when I heard that next morning, I went out with the group to work, mm. bar barefooted, and going on the rough thing. <laughs> Don't ask. It was terrible. Yeah, because people had stolen the, the few things that you yeah, had. Yeah, I yeah, suppose yeah. they thought you were going to die. Yeah, that was still in the beginning. That was in 1942. And uh, then... I obtained a pair of shoes which didn't quite fit 
So I cut the heel at the back, and uh, I didn't have any string, anything to tie up. So I found some wire mm. and tied up. Now, where did you obtain the shoes from? Do you remember? Yeah, from the warehouse. You, okay. you could queue up mm-hmm. there because, you know, they, people came, some people came with clothes, you know, mm. and uh, they took it all away. And I went there, and there was the only pair of shoes which fitted, but it was too short. And I put it, I remember some wire I found there, mm. and it cut in, and my ear started to bleed. Mm. So then I found pieces of cardboard and put it under the wire so uh, my heels were safe. And I was working like that. And uh, later on, uh, I went once again to to the warehouse to get a pair of shoes because I showed him, you know, the wounds on that. So I found a a good pair of shoes with wooden soles, timber, you know. And later on in another camp, I got a pair of shoes that were called Dutch shoes, Hollanderki, and they were all from wood. Oh, the clogs? Clogs, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, all from. And I tell you what, I was very lucky Mm. because we were carting rail lines, you know, single ones, and uh, suddenly one slipped and fell over on my foot. So it broke that Ah. cog. Yeah. And uh, but my foot was saved. Took it off, and it was safe. And I don't know. I tied up to have it together, and uh, I did get another pair of shoes. I think. Did you ever do anything that you're ashamed of in in those in the darkest, deepest, darkest days of survival in a concentration camp? So I don't think so. I haven't done. I didn't have any function whatsoever in the camp. You know, to supervise. But even, I mean, you know, pinching a bit of bread from somebody else. Or no, just no, that, that was a crime. If you got caught, mm. they beaten you up, yeah. the other prisoners. Even the capos would beat you up for it mm. because you got your ration and somebody else got his ration. You eat his ration, you make him die, you know. I never touched, never done that. Mm. I've heard stories, though, of people dying in the bunks and the other prisoners not yes. telling the guards so that they could keep that extra ration for a few yes. days. Yes, 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 that, that did happen. That mm. did happen. I remember when I was taken, I was already very, very weak uh, from that subcamp of Dachau to Dachau. That was in April 45. And on that wagon, we were about 70 people or so about. And by the time we got to Dachau, which took us a day and a half, and wasn't that far, probably 80, 90 kilometers away. And when we landed there, nearly half of that wagon were dead. Mm. They died from starvation. And when they came, how many of you? 70. And those who were alive had the bread from the dead people. At that time, when I came to to Birkenau, in Auschwitz, the life was better uh, than it was in Birkenau. Those people, most of them work, have had jobs. They had, of course, uh, there was, I think, block number 10 or 11, where they done the interrogation because Mostly there were political people there, mm. Romas, uh, communists, uh, Poles, uh, I mean Catholics, 
the French, uh, Belgium, some Germans. You know, there were mostly in Auschwitz. There were practically no Jews there. Mm. Usually they put all the Jews to Birkenau. There were a few Jews there. We got even here one uh, guide who works on Fridays, and he was in Auschwitz, but he was a German Jew. Mm. He was from Germany, and uh, they arrested him. They sent him to Auschwitz. He, been, he was there nearly three years. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he got some good jobs and that. You know, uh, some Germans were arrested there, you know, but they all have some good positions. Mm-hmm. Was Birkenau kind of attached to Auschwitz? Were they three next to each other? Three, three kilometres away. Three kilometres away. Yeah. So we, I think we think of of all of that as the Auschwitz camp. Yeah, Birkenau was known also as Auschwitz II. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was Auschwitz II, but that was the extermination part. They were murdered in, in Auschwitz itself, many people. Mm-hmm by starvation, uh, hanging, shooting. They had a black wall there where they were shooting people. Like block, I think it was block 11 or 10, I don't remember, where they interrogated people. There were some priests. There were many, many stories about Auschwitz. In my imagination, it's it's depraved and um, and I don't understand how you could keep your sanity and your humanity at all in that situation. Well, that... That was determination, and you had to believe in survival. Mm. Once you lost the belief, and you didn't believe they would survive, you didn't. My luck was that I was till the last minute, I believed. The last thing was when they took some group people of the known death march. I was very, very sick, very weak. My weight was about 38 kilos, you know, and uh, that was the time when they took a group of people to march, and I wouldn't go on that march. There was lying a tree there, and I sat down on the tree, and I said, if they have to shoot me, shoot me here. That was the only, the only time where I was, uh, uh, where I lost faith, that mm-hmm. I gave up. That the only time. Mm. But if somebody didn't come to me, I, I still said, and they put us on the train, roofless boxes, roofless wagons, and they brought us to Dachau. Okay. Now, you were very sick on that train, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I was very sick. A very heavy diarrhea, mm. and there was nothing in there. I passed some blood. Mm. Uh, my heart was weak. My lungs weren't <laughs> work. Mm. everything and I was very skinny just skin and bones mm. I bet you were pretty unpopular too on the train with your stomach troubles were yeah. people yelling at you and angry with you yeah, yeah. that stinks and I had to throw away my under undies oh. you know and then, then we came to Dachau and they put uh, till liberation I was in Dachau in Dachau itself two days uh, I went down, I was running every half an hour to the lavatory there. Mm. I had to throw away my undies and then my pants. All I had is a little jacket and a shirt. Wow. And then I was taken to hospital by the Americans. I think we were liberated on the 29th of April and on the 2nd or 3rd of May I was in hospital. I mean, I don't want to, you know, labour the point, but it just... 
I was thinking about what you were saying before. You grew up in an environment that was very formal and very um, polite, you know, in which you'd never seen a naked woman before. And and to find yourself so dehumanised as to be Absolutely. virtually naked in the yeah. world, yeah. it's incredible in the space of five years. No, it doesn't. It didn't matter nothing. No. It didn't, didn't even didn't bother me. Mm. I, we were naked when we were in Birkenau every week, selection. Wow. You know, if somebody didn't look too good, they took his number, and in a day or two they took him away what they called the Himmelstrasse, the avenue to heaven. Oh. That's what they called to go to the guest chambers, to the crematorias. And... Uh, I was I was extremely lucky that I survived all those. Uh, that, so all the men were naked. You didn't bother even. It didn't matter. And I was working about nearly two weeks on the women's compound. And every day there were selections for women. Some were sent to other camps. Some were sent uh, to crematoria or whatever. I didn't even bother to look. Mm. Tell you what. One day we were working, and women were broken, bringing bricks to us from somewhere, from a railway station or whatever. And suddenly somebody calls me by my name. And I look at her, and I couldn't recognize her. And suddenly, what, don't you know me? Oh, my God, that's my cousin. And she was about three or four years older than me, a beautiful girl always nicely hair done, you know, nicely dressed, and uh, she was a cashier, and that was a high-class job before the war. Mm. And she, she was, and I didn't recognize her, no hair, mm. she was shaved off, because all the people, they came in, women, they shaved them all off, from all over the body, everywhere. And I was, I didn't recognize her. Mm. And uh, next day, I said, I didn't have any bread. No, I did have a small piece of bread with me. And I said, well, how you had some food? You're hungry? Uh, she said, oh, no, I'm so hungry. So I gave him the small piece of bread. I said, have that. And what about you? I said, oh, I'm getting some more. And I gave it to her. She was happy. And I told her, come out to the same job tomorrow. Maybe I'll be able to organize a little bit extra bread because I had a friend who was working in a commando known as Canada. Mm. They, they, what they did is they cleaned up the wagons from the people who came. They were told to leave everything there. And they always had plenty of food because people had bread or some cake or whatever. And he had that. So he shared it with me for a while. Mm. He was in the next barrack to me. Mm. I was in 28 and he was in 32, I think, two barracks away. And he always helped me out because he had plenty. So I said that I meet him and he probably give me another piece of bread, you know, so I give it to her. But she never came back. So I asked her, some women what happened with that. He said they were all sent to another camp, but I never saw her again. She didn't survive. Question. When was the first time somebody was kind to you again? So I'm assuming this is to do with your liberation. Yeah, and I guess liberation, like, you know, when you were liberated, when, what, when was someone kind to you? If it was the first great thing that happened? 
when, when the Americans took me to the hospital, that was the first great thing what happened. Mm. Because when they washed my lice riddled body mm. with warm water, which I didn't have for the past four or five months, uh, that was something, something wonderful. And uh, I couldn't overcome that. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much, Willie. Have you got to talk again now? Have you got to talk again now to students? You'll find more info about all of our guests at michellelaurie.com as well as a place to leave questions and feedback. There's also a link there to the website of Tenzin Choyil. He is the man behind the beautiful Tibetan music you've heard throughout the podcast. Thank you to Tim Mountford and Peter Laurie for editing help, but please know that the clunkiest edits are all mine. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Nitty Gritty Committee, conversations about the guts and the glory of life. Please subscribe to get them all on iTunes and go ahead and leave us a nice review if you feel so inclined. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.